You're listening to Builder Funnel Radio. This is the Building a Family Business Show with Wes and Brooks Powell. Let's dive in. The Powell family construction business has been around for over 110 years. Over that time, it's evolved and been through four generations of the Powell family. What started as a new construction business building spec homes in the Seattle area evolved to building communities, remodeling, building custom homes, and then getting involved with property management. Today, the business currently owns and operates two retirement and assisted living facilities, several apartment buildings, and does third-party property management in the Seattle area with about 750 total doors under management. Over the last several decades, Wes and Brooks have seen it all when it comes to business evolution, family dynamics in the construction industry. This is the show where I work to extract their knowledge and experiences to help you navigate family dynamics, among other things, in your construction business. Let's dive into the show. Hey guys, did you know that 72% of client unhappiness is directly attributed to a lack of communication during projects? The team over at BuildBook has solved that problem once and for all with a tool that keeps all the conversations and decisions between you, your team, and your clients in one place. Their simple, powerful app helps you create daily logs, schedule and manage your client tasks, keep track of selections, process change orders, and so much more. I met the BuildBook team in Vegas at IBS earlier this year where they were chosen as a finalist for the most innovative construction tool of 2020 which is saying a lot considering how many tools are actually out there. If you're looking to remove the stress from your projects, make your clients happier, and increase your profits, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software, plus 45% off the first year. There's absolutely no risk to try it, so go ahead and hit pause and text BUILDBOOK to 33777. 777 to take advantage of the trial and score the 45% off. This deal isn't available anywhere else, so I recommend at least trying out the software. All right, let's dive into today's show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Building a Family Business here on Builder Funnel Radio. As always, joined with Wes and Brooks. How's it going, fellas? Going great. Going great, Spence. Good, good. Yeah, I just, uh, we were talking before we hit record and I just got back from LA and we were talking, talking cars. It seems like down there, it's just a, it's another world, you know, every other car is, well, I I would guess three out of four cars is a luxury brand. And then maybe one out of five or six cars is like a cut above luxury brand. Yeah, Wes, you guys were, we're talking about, uh, what is it? The gum, gumball rally? Yeah, we were talking about Gumball Rally, of course, back in the day in the 70s when that movie first came out, which uh, kind of dates dates us a little bit, but, uh, you know, loved that movie. But now I guess there's still uh, guys and maybe gals out there still trying to break that Gumball record. I think the most recent one was in the last, I don't know, a couple of months. The guy did it in under last month. Yeah, 25 hours or maybe a little under 25 hours. It's 25 it. plus, I think. Yeah. What was the record before? Yeah. It was in the 32s. It was 32 oh. to 33, kind of standard. And then somebody else did it sub 30 a couple of months ago during like 28 something hours. Yeah. 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 And then, so this was, it was, this guy did it totally unsupported because usually they run it with a blocker car and, you know, two or three people. He had a lot of electronics, I think, that he put yeah. in the, it was a rental Mustang GT and uh, he bolted in 
uh, all these extra gas tanks in the trunk <laughs> and in the back seat. And, uh, and then he, he basically, I think, um, brought along a bunch of pop bottles and everything else. <laughs> wouldn't have to make as many rest stops. <laughs> well, they, and they usually have one, though you have one like, you know, tanker truck or a truck set up with, yeah. you know, a couple hundred gallons of fuel. So they don't go to a gas station. They just go, they pull off at a, you know, an exit and they, they fill up and then off they go again. So anyway, it's crazy. Uh, that's pretty fast to get across the country, right? So was that three thousand miles? Yeah, it's usually it'd be like a, just say just say it was twenty five hours. 3, well, what's the the start and finish? That's a hundred averaging one hundred and twenty miles per hour. Yeah. Well, they start in, in New York City at the uh, what's what's the garage they start? Yeah, there's at? a I forget the name of that garage. There's the same garage that they all pull out of. And then they um, and then you finish at a hotel. Isn't it down at the dock? I always thought it was at the dock or something. No, there's a hotel lobby. There's a hotel they show. So you have to have a picture at the garage and a picture at the hotel. And then you have to document, you know, and say, you know, submit your pictures and say, yeah, I did do this. Crazy. Crazy. (laughs) And the other nutty thing that just, uh, just saw some uh, video on was that, uh, of course, heresy is that for the Mustang crowd, that people like Mustangs is that, uh, Ford has kind of created a sub-brand for the Mustang, and they're having the, the Mustang Mach-E, which they've just, uh, you can now order, you can place orders for. But it's a four-door, you know, with a, with a uh, hatch, and it's all electric. And so, you know, <laughs> everyone's, the top of everyone's head is coming off because, oh, my God, a four-door Mustang. But they just came out with a demonstration drift model. And fourteen hundred horsepower, fourteen hundred horsepower. <laughs> so if you go look for that video. It's just a bunch of tire smoke. <laughs> so, pretty crazy. Um, they said it's like a magnetic roller coaster. I've never been on a magnetic roller coaster. I don't know. I've never been on a magnetic roller. It's, it just sounds coaster. wild, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is. You know, if you're talking about Mustangs, a typical Mustang today, GT, you know, it's um, zero to 60 and in the fours, four second range somewhere. And this Mach-E with four doors, the GT model that's coming out will be sub four, zero to 60. So. Yeah. And it would have to be to kind of compete, you know, I mean, to compete with the Tesla. Right, with all the other electric cars, Tesla. Right. Other, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, sounds pretty cool. And what do they want for that one, uh, Wes? A hundred grand? Or? Oh no, 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 no! I think it'll be fifty something. So you know, Ford's always about uh, affordability. Yeah, relatively, uh, relatively affordable. Yeah. Relatively affordable. Yeah, because what what's the Tesla equivalent? Probably I don't know, but Tesla probably, yeah, probably eighty, probably eighty to ninety for you know apples to apples. Yeah. So yeah, crazy. 1400 horsepower. Yeah. Yeah. I always like to visualize that, you know, just put all the horses, you know, right there with (laughs) all 1400 horses right there. (laughs) A lot of horses. Yeah. Well, uh, we could be, we could probably talk cars uh, all day, or I say we, but you guys could, and I could watch you talk about cars. Yeah. Yeah, We Um, should probably move on to something else. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll, let's switch it up and talk. Leverage. That was something that we had talked about, I think, in in one of our first couple of conversations. And 
No, we mentioned we wanted to circle back around to that just because this tends to be a more levered business or it can be depending on how you how you grow your business. So I guess maybe Wes, let's just start off with some initial thoughts around leverage generally, like how are you thinking about leverage? Why do you want to use it? You know, and then we'll kind of go from there. Sure. Well, if you think about just the very word leverage, which comes from lever, and how do we, why do we use levers? And we really use levers to multiply our effort. So, you know, if you're going to move a boulder and, you know, you need to move it, you can stick a lever under one end of it and put a fulcrum there and then you can push down on it and it allows you to magnify your weight so you can move the boulder, you know. So it's really a way to get more work done faster. And so that's really what happens with leverage in a financial sense is you are going to take what money you have and you're going to leverage it by borrowing more money to do a project and that'll allow you to get a higher return on your amount of money. So typical example, you know, back in the, in the, in the 70s or, or 80s, you know, maybe you're going to build a house for, let's just, for, for easy math, you know, you're going to do a $100,000 house, that's the sales price. And so you're going to buy a lot for 20000 and build the house for 50000 and maybe have 10000 in sales costs and soft costs, and you're going to make $20,000 in profit. Well, in the olden days of lending, you used to actually be able to borrow 80% of the value or the sales price of the house. So you could actually borrow from the bank $80,000 to do this project. Well, if you remember the numbers I just ran through, $20,000 was your profit. So all you're really deferring was your profit. And you're going to take that 80000 and you're going to use that to, to buy the lot and build the house and, and sell it and pay the commission. And so you really, it's almost a zero down deal. Now, obviously, to get a loan from a bank, you have to have some financial resources and they're going to want to know that you have some cash on board and so on. But it's that simple idea of going, okay, I, I don't have a whole bunch of cash, but I can do this project and I can make $20,000 on the sale of this home. And maybe I've got a couple of grand into it. Well, that's, that's leverage at its most, its most simplest form, right? Now, over time, that has changed. So banks aren't going to loan you 100% of your hard costs. They, they'll loan you some, you know, probably 80% of your, 80, 85% of your hard costs. So you are going to have some cash into the deal. So that's, that's leverage. I mean, that, that's how you use it. And um, that's how you take a small amount of money and get larger returns and allows you to move faster and do more work. Now, with that, there's, there's certainly dangers. And I'm sure Brooks can talk a little bit about some of the dangers of leverage. You know, Brooks, what are your thoughts on, on leverage? Well, I believe there's no danger in leverage. Um, <laughs> it's just all reward, you know, no risk. <laughs> yeah, it's all reward, no risk. And uh, I have a phrase which probably is not uh, allowed on the podcast, but uh, it you know, basically says, uh, you know, delevering is very painful. And, um, <laughs> yeah, and so, and how do you say that really? <laughs> and so, delevering the bits. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so really, and, and by deleveraging, so that, that's a pretty fancy phrase for what? Pretty fancy phrase for, let's take your example, Wes, and say you borrowed $80,000 and you're going to sell this house for $100,000 and, and you know, bank the profit. 
but the uh, there's some cost overruns, and now it costs you eighty five thousand dollars. So you're five thousand dollars short, and then the house doesn't sell for three or four months. You have to service the debt, and that takes another five thousand dollars. So now you're two things have happened. You're down to ten thousand dollars in profit, and if you didn't have that extra ten thousand dollars in cash, the five for the overruns and the five for the interest, you had to borrow that from somewhere, or you had to not pay your vendors. And then the, the economy softens a little bit. The bank gets nervous and says, "Hey, we want you to put more cash into this project until you sell it." So they'll do a, uh, you know, what they call rebalancing of the loan. That's one of my favorite terms. Um, let's just balance, rebalance this up, right? Yeah. Let's rebalance this up. Well, or we give me a bunch over. of cash. <laughs> right. So let's. Why don't you put twenty grand in cash into this project, pay down the loan until you get it sold. So we feel better. So all of a sudden you went from having no cash into it to $10,000 plus another $20,000. And you've got $30,000 in cash into it and you still haven't sold the house and maybe you're going to make 10 grand now. So that's all fine. If you had the 30 grand in cash, if you don't, that's the problem. That's the rub. And so that's where I say delevering, which is, you know, rebalancing is really a tough situation especially if you're kind of spread all over town with several different banks and all the banks get nervous on the same day. And that's where people run into trouble with leverage. Yeah, I think, you know, so you can pretty much say that the higher your leverage, the higher the risk. The more you leverage what you have, certainly if everything goes well, the better off you'll be, you know, the faster you'll move. But the snapback, uh, the snapback, it can be really can be really rough. So I think, you know, that, that always begs the question, which is how much leverage should you really use? Because you can go from one extreme, which would be no leverage, which I only, I only work with my own cash. And so that, that's one end. And then the other end is kind of what I described at the top of the program, which is 100% leverage. So that's the, word, other, I work with the other end of the extreme. Yeah, yeah. Right. so that's the highest level of risk. So, you know, what is the proper, what is the proper point of leverage? And that's probably going to vary, vary for everybody listening to the program, depending on what their risk tolerance is or what their spouse's risk tolerance is or their partner's, partner's risk tolerance. Partners, yeah. yeah, just think of it as, you know, yeah. it is you know we're talking about family business and, yeah. you know, other people that are, their livelihoods are at stake as well. And, um, and then you also, we have to take into account, you know, everyone has a risk profile, but you also have to look at it and go, okay, well, if this doesn't work out well, you know, what, what are my moral obligations, you know, to repay this money? You know, some people will say, well, you just declare bankruptcy and you just move on. And so, you know, personally, I'm not a, a huge fan of that <laughs> approach. I mean, you know, it's, hey, you borrow this money, you owe this money. So, Everyone is, is going to have a different approach to that as well. So all those things kind of have to be factored in. There are certain things that, you know, banks, banks have certain guidelines, which you can use as a, you know, a rule of thumb. A lot of times banks will loan you for every dollar in cash you have or a dollar in equity or your 401k or whatever, whatever it might be. They might loan you $3. So one, you know, a three to one ratio, they call it, or $5. You know, right before the downturn in 08, I mean, banks were doing 10 to 1. 
So the banks were really bullish on the home building business. And so they just pushed a ton of money out there. You know, the 10 to 1 ratio. So we know how that turned out. Didn't turn out well for lenders. Not for the, not for the 95% of the builders went out of business. No, it didn't, right. work, out well it didn't work out for their lenders either, right? So, so I think the point is there is sometimes we think, well, just because the bank is willing to do this, this must be normal or That's okay. Right. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it isn't because banks are made up of people and those folks can make bad decisions. And they're trying to make a return also. They're trying to make a return for shareholders. So they, right. have, a, they have a mandate to you know, generate a return and they may say, hey, we need to get as much return as possible. So we'll take on more risk. We as the borrowers think, well, if they're okay with it, it must be okay. And as, as we discovered, you know, the banks are just as, as fallible as, as we are for making mistakes. I mean, I don't know if any of you guys have watched The Big Short with Steve. <laughs> That's right. just a perfect example of, of that whole situation where capital was chasing returns and the people who got the most damaged were those consumers who didn't really understand what was going on because they're like, well, the banks say it works. It must work. You know, somebody must be smarter than me. Turned out, yeah, two or three people were really smart and the rest of us, you know, were not. <laughs> well, and I think that there's a difference too between smart and common sense. Correct. So, you know, because as, as we saw with, with uh, what caused the, the bubble back in 08 with the tranching of debt and things like that, incredibly smart people thinking through that and how to do that. But common sense, not so much. Well, you have to be a fact you layer in, in greed. I mean, we all, you know, yeah, right. everybody wants to make a return and be profitable and have money so they can buy that. That you know that car in LA that's like three steps up, right? You know, and um, it, and that's where you have to sit down when you're trying to figure out your own comfort level with leverage, which is you know what am I willing to risk? Because most of us have to sign personally. So how do you figure that out? If you know you're like you said, Brooks, you can use the bank as kind of a starting point, but we don't necessarily want to take that as the the end all be all. I guess what was your kind of personal, you know, is there a multiple that you think about like that 10 to one ratio or five to one, or is it just situational? You know, it's interesting. uh, The older I get, the more, the more conservative I get. And I think probably most people would say I'm still pretty high, willing to accept high levels of risk, but it's way, it's way less than it was, you know, 30 years ago. But my, my risk tolerance is still way more than my wife's or my you know, our younger brother, there are certain things you put in place by asking and collecting that information. I mean, some of the information, you know, we're sharing now, which is, you know, a ratio of one to three or one to five, you know, goes back to, well, how much cash reserve should you have on board to run your company? You know, so you have to decide, you know, the industry standard, be like, oh, if you have three months of operating reserves, that you'll be fine. And turns out that's probably never enough. So is it 12 months of operating reserves? So there's different key points you have to ask yourself. What are the things you're comfortable with so you can sleep at night? You know, and if you don't care about sleeping, then the numbers are much less. But if you're, <laughs> if, if you're gonna, it's going to stress you out. So you have to think about that because the industry standard is it's just the industry standard. And it's just a guideline. And you can't take that as a gospel because at the end of the day, 
you know, most of us signed personally, personally guaranteeing our loans. When the debt's due, they come looking at you, and that's it. So, and they'll roll it, the bank will roll you up as quick as they'll roll anybody up. I think you have to, to ask yourself a lot of what if questions. And sometimes, you know, we, we forget to do that just because things have been going along in a particular way for a length of time. But you, and I think we're certainly seeing that now, of course, with the, the pandemic, which is going on as we record this, this podcast and kind of the impact that's had on the economy. But of course, you go back to February of this year, and now here we're sitting here in, in July, no one would have predicted or seen that. And so as you're thinking about your risk tolerance, you'd have to say, well, what happens if I can't sell this house for a year and a half? What happens? You know? And so those things will start to suss out for you what your risk tolerance is. And also help you put some plans in place for different emergencies that, that could happen that you know, probably won't. You know? For the most part, they're not, those things aren't gonna happen. But if, if you've thought through those, at least you'll be able to um, sleep better at night and because you'll know what your action plans are depending on, on how things go forward in your, in your business. So I think doing those types of things can help you, you know, feel a little calmer about using leverage and maybe help you drive you to the right amount of leverage. And also having those discussions with your partners, your business partners. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. That's part of that conversation. So everybody's on the same page that says, okay, well, let's, let's say, you know, everybody's in, they've contributed their capital, and you, but you've had those discussions ahead of time. Which, yeah, what, what if we don't sell this house or this, we have a renovation we're doing on spec and we don't sell it for three months or two months? You know, what's our pricing strategy going to be? And it really tests those discussions because you get you know you get four people in a room and one person's going to be like we're holding price until you know the cows come home and another person's like if we haven't sold it in a day we're cutting the price to the bone and we're getting out and you know it's somewhere in that in the middle but we always had uh, a pricing strategy approach to you know how are we going to move if the market changes and 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 not in a positive way because you know you can always raise your price if the market's moving up but if the market's contracting and there's less buyers, what is your strategy to get out ahead of everybody else? So we always had a strategy, which was, you know, we want to be out of this market before the other, you know, before the it's all over and there's four or five other guys sitting on spec houses or spec renovations and they can't get rid of them. And they're going for 20% less than three or four months earlier. So our goal was to, you know, cut early, cut deep, and get ahead of it so you're not chasing the market down. So we had so we had some of these general strategies and everybody was in agreement on it. And no one liked it when we had to do it, but we're like, yeah, that's what we gotta do. And so we, we did have a, a common agreement around kind of a general strategy. But we, it took a while to get to that. If you've followed Builder Funnel for even a little bit, you know we're huge believers in the inbound marketing methodology. One of the most important phases is the client delight phase. By delighting customers, you turn them into promoters of your business and your brand. The only way to get people to go out of their way to sing your praises is to wow them throughout the process. This is something the guys over at BuildBook are helping you do. 
Better communication leads to better outcomes, and that means communication at every level. Daily logs, client selections, punch lists, and change orders. Today, that communication gets super fragmented between email, text, and phone calls, and inevitably, things fall through the cracks. With BuildBook, everything funnels through one simple app, keeping everyone on the same page and your clients filled with delight. No more digging through texts or random emails looking for client approvals. Just one place to see everything going on with a project. And as a reminder, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software plus 45% off the first year. All right, let's get back to the show. That's a great comment because we make a lot of assumptions about what other people think, you know, what our partners think and our significant others think. And if you don't have that conversation, you won't find out until the rubber meets the road and and you've got some sort of an issue or a problem. I think around, you know, leverage and how much leverage really comes down to, if you do have partners, it's probably going to gravitate towards the partner who has the least amount of tolerance for risk. I would bet that's kind of where it's going to go. Um, I think where you have to be comfortable, though, is that that there's a a wide range of risk tolerance within your partnerships that that probably the person who's the most risk tolerant is going to have to say, I'm going to have to be okay with that, and I'm not going to just you know, hammer on the other person about, hey, why can't we keep moving? You know, we need to, you know, we need to do more. We need to go faster. And you got to have those conversations and figure out how that's going to work. That's an unhealthy, that becomes an unhealthy relationship because the, I had a a friend of mine and he was all leverage all day long and he partnered up with another guy who was all cast all day long. It lasted like 18 months because they just approached things differently. And, it, you know, it was amicable, but it's just like, you know what, we are not on the same page. So it's a challenge in a family business where you might be in, in a business with family members that you're not choosing by risk tolerance. Sure. Right. So you, you, not, you're not, you, you're, your spouse, you didn't choose because of their risk tolerance. You know, that's, you that wasn't, that wasn't number one on the list. Yeah. Hey, honey, you know, yeah. Great personality, high risk tolerance. (laughs) Put that right in your online profile, right? Yeah, right. And same, you know, Spence for you. So you have cousins and aunts and uncles. And it wasn't all about risk tolerance. It's It's about the family ties there and how you... So it may be that in a family business around leverage and risk tolerance, you may do some projects with family members that are more conservative. And if you have a high need to be out there and roll the dice, you may just be doing that on your own or with other partners that meet that same risk profile. And, and that's just a way to, to deal with it. If someone's a real hard driver and they want to make a ton of money and take a lot of risk, probably not, it may not fit in that family business environment unless they're in charge, in control, and guaranteeing everything themselves. Then everybody else is like, oh, okay, you know. Yeah, and that is one thing you have to think about, though, and I don't know, I haven't thought this through totally, but as you were saying that, Brooks, it made me think about if you say you have a high risk tolerance and you go out and do some things on your own and you're doing other things with other folks that lower risk tolerance, you have to make sure that your projects that you are doing on your own don't, can't come back and impact 
the other folks that maybe have a lower risk tolerance on those other projects. So there has to be some way to firewall between those projects because Absolutely. that would be the worst if you were in partnership with somebody who had a high risk tolerance and they went out and did some other projects. And because they were not successful, that took your your project down through no fault of your own. Yeah, that goes back to guarantees and how you set those guarantees up and that, you know, it, and it's pretty typical in partnerships where a partner is not allowed to pledge the assets of another partnership. You know, yeah, he can, he can personally guarantee you something, but the bank can only get to his personal assets and there is that firewall to separate. So you have to be aware if you have a high risk partner and they're out there doing a lot of stuff that they may blow up and they may not be there to support you in a downturn when there's a capital call and everybody's supposed to write a check for a hundred grand, that partner's gone. And it's like, okay, how are we going to cover that? And so those can just be some, you know, frank discussions because, you know, every partnership or LLC agreement, there's capital call contributions, all those kinds of things that are in there. So running through those scenarios is always a little sobering when you're talking about doing a project. Say, okay, well, if this goes wrong and the, we have a rebalance and we have to all write a check for a hundred grand, is everybody good with that? You look around the table, you know, and you can tell, oh, that, you know, that person's not good with that. So, so Brooks, uh, you know, as you think about it, how much, how much liquidity, because that's really what this comes down to, you know, it, liquidity. it comes down to liquidity, which how much cash do you have on board to service debt if you've leveraged up? And um, so how much liquidity do you think you should have in a business or, or how would someone go about thinking about that? I would, yeah, I would go about, you know, it, probably if you're starting out and you have nothing to lose, you know, then I don't, I don't, wouldn't have minded being a hundred percent leveraged. Now my wife would probably not agree with that, you know, but, that's it. but then as you get older, then you go, then you go, and then I, we really use kind of the bank guidelines one to three. We never went past one to one to three. And even that became painful during the recession and it turned out we should have been one to two or one to one. And it's just really hard to grow your company take being that, conservative so i think that's but i'd never go over one to five probably and another way to do it is like we talked about before get lines of credit set up on your houses give yourself some other ways to have capital you know if you need you know if you need it so that it doesn't have to be cash in the bank it could be well i've got cash in the bank if it gets really deep i could draw my line of credit and if it got really deep i could draw against my 401k without closing it you know so those are you know those are kind of be the three buckets you would go to. And for us, we were, we went into the recession. We were, we had two years of overhead in the bank, cash in the bank. We burned through all of that. And we had our, both our houses paid off for both partners. And we drew those down a hundred percent and we made it, but it, it was five years of just, and we were working, making money and trying to make money and dig our way out. But that, so it took, I think it took over $2 million to survive that. And then we had to start over. But we survived it and didn't have to declare bankruptcy. So I would say, yeah, it's that, I would say it's, it's that balance of how do you lever, use leverage in a way to grow your company at a rate that'll meet your financial goals without going bust. And so, you know, one to two works, one to three works. Anything beyond that, I think you're taking some bigger chances. It's kind of interesting hearing you guys talk about the. I guess the balance of where you want to be for leverage or risk. And then you're thinking about your, 
say, business partner, but then typically or often both of those people have, you know, a spouse. And so, you know, I think a lot of times that person doesn't always make it into the, the equation because oftentimes if you do have that set up, you know, that person isn't necessarily a part of all the initial documentation or, you know, officially part of the company or anything like that, but they are a part of the equation. And it, it almost feels like as you think about it that way, whether the spouse is literally working in the business or if they're totally outside the business, you've got two people and that immediately goes to four people or potentially more, depending on how many partners are involved. If you're always kind of pushing towards the, the lower risk tolerance or, you know, finding that somewhere in the middle, it, it should push you down, but that doesn't always happen. I, I know. Think, I think it will. I think it will because, I mean, I'm just using sample, you know, for us, Todd and his wife, Julie, you know, they have different levels of risk tolerance to myself or my wife, Heather. And, you know, I'm probably the highest, I have the highest tolerance. and they all have lesser degrees of tolerance for risk. It's just a lot of discussions about, you know, hey, what about this project? And what about, uh, and even the lowest, there's probably, and I guess you could get someone who had no risk tolerance. And, and if in that situation, then that's probably just not going to work in, our, in, in a business that has, has risk. And right. so that might be a partnership doesn't work that way because there is one partner who doesn't want to take any risk. Like, you need to go work for the government or do something else because this is not the business. You just can't do it that way here. I don't really, I don't think so, but maybe I'm overthinking it. No, I, I don't think so. And back to your point about discussions, Brooks, I think if your spouse or your partner, let's say it's, you know, it's a non-working relative that's, you know, but they're, you know, it's your spouse. So they're, they're involved in the business in the sense that they're signing right, documentation. So, but I think some, one of the things that happens sometimes with a spouse is they say, well, you know, you're handling that, you know, no, yeah, I trust you, you know, go ahead. We're fine. You know, you're telling me it's fine. And I think that's a super dangerous place to be. So I think, you know, if you're listening to the podcast and, and your spouse is the one who's saying, hey, I don't, you know, do what you want to do. You know, I trust you to run the business and so on. I would push back on on that person and say, no, you know, you really do need to understand this because if things go great, that's awesome. You're going to benefit. If things don't go well, you're going to be in there in the soup trying to help, you know, work it out as well. So you really have to understand that. So I think, you know, it's nice to have someone say, oh, you know, whatever you say is great, but you don't want them to be there because yeah, you want them to be add implications for your relationship later. Yeah, you, yeah, you want to be, you want to, you want to ask and say, Hey, I want you to question, mm-hmm. question down on these things, find out, you know, question me about my assumptions. Uh, let's try to make this a better deal. It, you know, the deal may not go away, but it might be a better deal. And you can, you know, there are certain things you can do. You can limit exposure for the couple. If it's a married couple and uh, you know, only the, Let's assume it's the husband who's in the construction business and building houses. Only the husband can guarantee, you know, and the, the, the wife cannot guarantee. And you can keep the, put the house in the wife's name. And there's certain things you can do to, you know, like the firewall, those situations. But, you know, out in, our, in the state of Washington, you know, both spouses have to guarantee. You know, so there's no really any way to 
separate. So you go back to Wes's example, which is, you know, if you're signing a personal guarantee, you should know, you know, what the risk is and, uh, and ask those questions. And, uh, cause you're both, both people are taking the risk. Yeah. One person's running it. That's yeah, kind of how don't let, don't let that other person off the hook by them saying, no, I, I don't, I don't need to read it. I don't need to know. It's, no, I yeah, need you need to read it. need to understand. Yeah. Legal documents. Everyone needs to be on board. I remember having those discussions pretty early on with my wife, Rachel, we got it. She has a much lower risk tolerance than, than I do. And then I think the three of us have talked about, I'm probably even lower than, than both of you guys are, but we, we kind of gravitated more towards what she was comfortable with because back to what you talked about Brooks was we both wanted to make sure everybody was sleeping well at night. Nobody was up worried about that or really nervous, you know? And so we, prioritize that like happiness level or comfort level above like business goals and speed, I guess is more, uh, yeah. you know, kind of the question and how fast are you moving and you know, how hard are you charging in terms of that? Right. But it's been interesting. I think we gravitated that way. And then as we've gotten involved in more things, she's kind of pulled up probably if she were to look at her original risk tolerance and then where she's at now, she's just more, knowledgeable and more comfortable with what we're involved with. And I think it's primarily just a, Hey, I haven't been exposed to this before. So I'm learning all of this. This is new. And then as you get comfortable with, you know, what's going on, then I think that helps you take on more risk, but in some ways it feels like less because of the knowledge, you know? And, And so I think there's that component too, is if you've got, people that have really firm grasp of what the business is, where the levers are, where the risks are, and you've tried to mitigate those risks. If you compare it to somebody who say, working for the government, we say, oh, that's the zero risk. Well, you might actually be in, you know, a less risk situation controlling your own destiny with some quote unquote risk and leverage, but you've I don't know. You're just aware of it. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, the, the knowledge piece is huge. Obviously, the more you know, the more industry knowledge you have, all of that is what causes you to take the same situation but view it as being less risky because of your knowledge base. And so, if all things, you know, they say get understanding. So, I think um, that that's what you want to get in your business is a true understanding and if you, you understand it, then you understand what the pitfalls are and you understand how to navigate those pitfalls and you know what your options are. So that's a great example, Spencer. I mean, as, as Rachel's knowledge has come up in business, then she's like, okay, I understand that. So it's not as scary. You know, the unknown is scary. But if you know, that's not as scary and you can put those plans in place. Yeah. And we've spent a good, a good chunk of time understanding, you know, what those worst case scenarios are and kind of going back to what you guys were talking about in terms of liquidity, making sure we have really good runway in terms of what we're looking at. If something, you know, if a house wasn't rented for a while and you have to cover that, you know, the mortgage, how long could you cover it for? And, you know, those types of, you know, risks that you take on, but it kind of, circles back around to Brooks, you said, you know, if you're just starting out, you know, you'd be fine with 100% leverage, you know, pretty low. 
to zero liquidity. But let's say for people listening, they've got a fairly established business, maybe been in business 5, 10, 15 years, potentially more. And you guys had two years worth of operating expenses. I think a lot of people listening would go, holy shit, that's, that's a lot. Like we, we don't have that much just lot. sitting. Yeah. It was um, a lot and then it was gone. And then, right. And that's the, that's the crazy part. Like you, the fact that you had built that up, I don't think you saw the crash coming and maybe you did, but, <laughs> but I guess I'm curious to understand why you had built it up to that number. And would you recommend that number or is there kind of a, you know, a different, you know, months worth? Well, of, uh, probably you know, a couple of mistakes we made. One, we had built it up because we had a, a rental portfolio that was cash flowing. And then as the market deteriorated, that rental portfolio stopped cash flowing and started to eat cash and ate cash at the same time our construction business was not generating cash. So our whole plan was like, well, the construction business will always make money. So mistake number one was assumed that the construction business will always make money. So I would go back to the people, yeah, they've been doing it for 10 or 15 years and they think, well, I've got this cash reserves, it's six months or it's a year. Just ask the questions, which are, what? well, what if we didn't, you know, if we didn't make money for a year, how long could we last? Or let's say we've got a rental portfolio, we have five units, and let's say that, you know, 25% of the portfolio was vacant for a year. And so these things you think, oh, that'll never happen. Well, and here we are in the pandemic, and, and the government is mandating no evictions. And you're thinking, I never would have thought that would have ever happened. And, and here we are. So I it, you ask those crazy questions and then come up with what you're comfortable with and you're, you're going to be probably close to right. And your goal is at the end of the day, is you just want to survive whatever the economic upheaval is so you can you know, live to fight another day and make another dollar. And I think that's, if you just, if you save more, it goes back to that fortress balance sheet idea we talked about, which is just having a lot of cash on board is never a bad idea. So, but, but if you use those standards of, you know, one to three ratio or a one to five ratio for borrowing and what are my different firewalls for how much money I have, what I have available, you know, so that's that idea of, you know, if you can pay your house off and have a line of credit, then you've got another resource without having to have that, you know, cash sitting in the bank or something. So where you can pay off a rental and have a line of credit on that. So different ways to, have different reserves. Yeah, I, as I'm listening to you say that, Rex, so I think one thing I would say about the lines of credit, say on your house or, or other assets, I know back in the, in the 07, 08 downturn, I knew several, uh, several folks here in town that had different types of businesses. One was a, an HVAC company and so on. So he had a, a line of credit that he used and you need to read the fine print on your lines of credit pretty carefully. So uh, he relayed the story of, of <laughs> he was out golfing with his banker, you know, <laughs> about hole number seven. And the banker said, oh, by the way, we're going to call your line of credit. And he's like, well, wait a second. You know, there wasn't anything wrong with this business. Nope. You know, it was just fine. But the bank had kind of freaked out by what was going on in the marketplace and so they were going around and in, in yanking lines of credit. <laughs> so, so, you know, grade, I would say grade your liquidity options. Obviously, cash in the bank is most liquid, and that's number one. And then you could go to maybe, you know, stocks and bonds. 
those are fairly liquid. You know, there's a big market for those, but the value can go up and down. And as we've just seen in this most recent downturn, so, you know, you might see a 30 or 40% drop in the value of that portfolio. So you have to recognize that that could plummet, even though it's liquid. And then maybe at the end of that, it's lines of credit, but recognizing that those lines of credits could be could be pulled. So you kind of have to grade, grade your liquidity, I think, and go, okay, well, what are the odds of that? And what would happen if, if this- And you have, to, you have to be ahead of, you have to be ahead of your, your lenders and not in a bad way, but just be thinking, okay, how does, you know, what am I hearing in the news? What am I hearing? What's going on? Because when, it, when the downturn started, you know, for us, we drew down all of our lines of credit, took the money, put it in a, in a different bank. And so then you have to spread your money around depending on who you're borrowing from and just protect yourself. And so we did that. So if they had closed our lines of credit, we would have just said, well, okay, well, let's figure out how we're going to repay you. But we've got the cash. And so that's where in that, in that situation you gave Wes is if he had pulled down his line of credit, you know, because he's saying, no, he wouldn't have even have thought of that because he's like, my business is doing fine. But it's what's going on in the whole economy, what's going on, you know, in the banking world, what kind of banking pressures are, yeah, I had a, another friend who had a guarantee on a $50 million loan with some other partners. They were rock solid. The bank during the downturn needed the money. So the bank crunched on them and said, hey, we want you to pay this off because you're out of compliance for some reason. And so they had to you know, work their way through that. But it wasn't because of the project or because of the guarantors. It was because the bank was under pressure and the bank needed liquidity. That's right. That's so I think if, if you're working with a bank, uh, I mean, most likely you are, you know, if you're working with a bank, then I think that's where the level of communication has to be high at all times. So, you know, even if your bank doesn't reach out to you very often, um, you need to reach out to your bank, you know, develop some relationships within the bank. Uh, so you, you have some folks that you can take to breakfast or lunch and find out how things are going for the bank and, and you can relay how things are going for you. And so you have that dialogue. So when you need, when you need to talk to somebody, you can talk to somebody. And that, that's where I always, and this is just personal preference and it's going to be different for everyone, but that's why I like to work with smaller banks, local banks, that at least you can develop some sort of a personal relationship so they understand where you are coming from and that you are, you are a good risk. You know? and, and smaller banks are going to be more motivated to work with you because they don't want to take the write-off. You right. know, if you borrowed a million dollars from a small bank, they're going to like, hey, we'd like to get that money back. If you borrowed a million dollars from Bank of America, eh, whatever, they don't care. They'll just they'll wrap you up. And so I think that's a good point. Do remember that banks are, you know, they're very friendly, but when it comes time to roll you up, you know, that loan officer disappears and you get, you know, you're into special credits and it's a whole different relationship. So, you know, it's a nice relationship. Yeah, they'll take you golfing. They'll, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. but that person's gone. And but I think that's approach where you want to work as high up in the bank as you possibly can. Absolutely. So yeah. you want to be talking to, um, if you can, be talking to the bank president. That, the that, that's the person you yeah. want to be talking to. Uh, if you're talking to VP level, there's usually like 9,000 VPs. Yeah. <laughs> in the banking industry, everyone gets to be a VP. Yeah. It just helps on the sales side. So Right. So I think that's a, that's a very valid point. Um, and that did help us during the downturn a little bit because uh, we a little, had, bit. little bit, little bit. It might have 
because things got so bad then for everybody, it ended up, you know, not. Sure. Yeah, I'm not saying that's a that's a you know, but at least it's a little something where it'll buy you some time. It'll buy you some time. Exactly. Where they're going like, well, okay, we've been banking with them for 30, 40 years. We'll, you know, we'll give them a little more runway. We'll try to, you know, we'll we'll wrap up some other people first before we get to them. But in in the recession of 08, 09, it got so bad for so long. Eventually, you know, they get to you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, that it gives you more more time to try to figure it out. Which yeah, and that's what problem. that's what you need at that point. You need need that time. Well, we're digging into some pretty good stuff here, and I want to dive deeper into this uh, fortress balance sheet concept. But I know you guys have a hard stop coming up, so I think we'll say that for next week. But I think this whole concept of you know how much liquidity, what does that balance sheet look like, the different grades of liquidity. I think we were getting into that a little bit, so. Maybe we could do a deep dive next time. But any final thoughts on leverage and liquidity as we wrap up this conversation? Wes, anything you'd leave? I, you know, I was cash is king. And, um, you know, it's, it's great if you can work from an all cash position and don't have any lenders. You know, that, ultimately, that's the, that's the greatest place to be. And uh, so if you can get there or if, if it makes you feel comfortable and you want to go slower and, and do it that way, that's that's not a bad standpoint, you know. Then then you can just ignore this entire conversation. <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. And I'm sorry, I was distracted. There was this huge hawk just landed on the uh, <laughs> right outside my window. That's that's looking to feast on some birds on my bird feeder. So uh, yeah, pretty funny. <laughs> but speaking of hawks, I would say yeah, you, you can be cast, but that's not realistic for most of us. You know, that's maybe you know one out of a hundred. So have those discussions with your partners. Just, you know, you know, grab grab lunch and just sit down and just talk about it. Talk about talk about, hey, how were you raised? How did you discuss risk and cash flow and money at your at your table when you were a kid? You know, how does that affect how you think about it now? And it is an interesting conversation and um, it'll get you closer to then when you're looking at projects. And talking about it, you know, where is everybody at and what what is the right position you want to get into as a business and personally, and I think it's it's more collaborative, you get there quicker and you don't spend a lot of time trying to do projects together that you know maybe you shouldn't be trying to do together because of, of very, very risk tolerances. Yeah. Good advice. Well, um, thanks guys for sharing your thoughts and for everybody listening. Hopefully you've you've probably identified it by now. We, we don't have all the magic answers. We just give you good ways to think through everything. But I think as with all things in business and especially family business, it, there are so many you know, factors and personalities and you do have to take those into consideration. So it's hard to say, yes, you should do X and that's the only right answer. And so hopefully what, what these conversations do for you guys, just give you another way to think about it, some, some new lenses to look through and make a good decision for your situation. So uh, we appreciate you guys listening. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with a friend or a colleague and go ahead and leave us a review over on iTunes. And we'll see you next week here on Building a Family Business on Builder Funnel Radio. Thank you.